I think it's quite conceivable that humanity is just a passing phase in the evolution of intelligence. That's Jeffrey Hinton, often referred to as the godfather of AI. He's one of the most important figures in the field. As a pioneer of deep learning, he developed some of AI's most fundamental techniques. And lately, he's shaking things up once more, stepping down from his role at Google because he says he wants to speak freely as he grows increasingly worried about the potential harms of AI. In his first live audience interview since this news became public, Hinton joined us at our signature AI conference, MTech Digital. I'm Jennifer Strong. In this episode, we bring you that conversation from the MIT Media Lab as Jeff Hinton speaks with my colleague, the senior editor for AI, Will Douglas Heaven. In 2018, Jeffrey received the Turing Award, which is often called the Nobel of Computer Science, alongside Jan LeCun and Yoshia Bengio. He's here with us today to talk about intelligence, what it means, and where attempts to build it into machines will take us. Jeffrey, welcome to MTech. Thank you. How's your week going? Busy few days, I imagine. Well, the last 10 minutes was horrible because my computer crashed and I had to find another <laughs> computer and connect it up. And we're glad you're back. That's the kind of technical detail we're not supposed to share with the audience. Right. Okay. It's great you're here. Very happy that you could join us. Now, I mean, it's been in the news everywhere that you uh, stepped down from Google this week. Um, could you start by telling us why you, why you made that decision? Well, there were a number of reasons. There's always a bunch of reasons for a decision like that. One was that I'm 75, and I'm not as good at doing technical work as I used to be. My memory's not as good, and when I program, I forget to do things. So it was time to retire. A second was, very recently, I've changed my mind a lot about the relationship between the brain and the kind of digital intelligence we're developing. So I used to think that the computer models we were developing weren't as good as the brain. And the aim was to see if you could understand more about the brain by seeing what it takes to improve the computer models. Over the last few months, I've changed my mind completely. And I think probably the computer models are working in a rather different way from the brain. They're using backpropagation, and I think the brain's probably not. And a couple of things have led me to that conclusion, but one is the performance of things like GPT-4. So let's, I want to get on to the performance of GPT-4 very much in a minute, but let's you know, go back so that we all understand um, the argument you're making and tell us a little bit about what backpropagation is. And this is an algorithm that you, you developed with a couple of colleagues back in the 1980s. Um, many different groups discovered backpropagation. Um, the special thing we did was used it um, and showed that it could develop good internal representations. And curiously, we did that by, show, by implementing a tiny language model. It had embedding vectors that were only six components, and the training set was 112 cases. Um, but it was a language model. It was trying to predict the next term in a string of symbols. And about 10 years later, Yoshio Benjo took basically the same net and used it on natural language and showed it actually worked for natural language if you made it much bigger. Um, but the way backpropagation works, um, I can give you a rough explanation from it, of it. Um, people who know how it works can sort of sit back and feel smug and laugh at the way I'm presenting it. Okay, because I'm a bit worried about them. <laughs> um, 
So imagine you wanted to detect birds in images. So an image, let's suppose it was a 100 pixel by 100 pixel image. That's 10,000 pixels, and each pixel is three channels, RGB. So that's 30,000 numbers, the intensity in each channel in each pixel, that represents the image. And the way to think of the computer vision problem is, how do I turn those 30,000 numbers into a decision about whether it's a bird or not? And people tried for a long time to do that, and they weren't very good at it. Um, but here's a suggestion for how you might do it. You might have a layer of feature detectors that detects very simple features in images, like, for example, edges. So a feature detector might have big positive weights to a column of pixels, and then big negative weights to the neighboring column of pixels. So if both columns are bright, it won't turn on. And if both columns are dim, it won't turn on. But if the column on one side is bright and the column on the other side is dim, it'll get very excited. And that's an edge detector. So I just told you how to wire up an edge detector by hand, by having one column of big positive weights and next to it one column of big negative weights. And we can imagine a big layer of those detecting edges in different orientations and different scales all over the image. We'd need a rather large number of them. And edges in an image, you mean just sort of lines, sort of edges of a, of a, of a shape? A place, where the, a place where the intensity changes from bright to dark. Um, yeah, just that. Then we might have a layer of feature detectors above that that detect combinations of edges. So, for example, we might have something that detects two edges that join, join at a fine angle like this. Um, so it'll have a big positive weight to each of those two edges. And if both of those edges are there at the same time, it'll get excited. And that would detect something that might be a bird's beak. It might not, but it might be a bird's beak. You might also, in that layer, have a feature detector that would detect a whole bunch of edges arranged in a circle. Um, and that might be a bird's eye. It might be all sorts of other things. It might be a knob on a fridge or something. Um, then in a third layer, you might have a feature detector that detects this potential beak and detects the potential eye and is wired up so it'll like a beak and an eye in the right spatial relation to one another. And if it sees that, it says, ah, this might be the head of a bird. And you can imagine if you keep wiring like that, you could eventually have something that detects a bird. But wiring all that up by hand would be very, very difficult, deciding on what should be connected to what and what the weight should be. And it would be especially difficult because you want these sort of intermediate layers to be good not just for detecting birds, for, but for detecting all sorts of other things. So it would be more or less impossible to wire it up by hand. So the way backpropagation works is this. You start with random weights. So these feature detectors are just complete rubbish. And you put in a picture of a bird, and at the output it says, like, 0.5, it's a bird. Suppose you only have birds or non-birds. And then you ask yourself the following question. How could I change each of the weights in the network, um, each of the weights on connections in the network, so that instead of saying 0.5, it says 0.501 that it's a bird, and 0.499 that it's not? And you change the weights in the directions that will make it more likely to say that a bird is a bird and less likely to say that a non-bird is a bird. And you just keep doing that. And that's backpropagation. And backpropagation is actually how you take the discrepancy between what you want, which is a probability of 1 that it's a bird, and what it's got at present, which is a probability of 0.5 that it's a bird, 
how you take that discrepancy and send it backwards through the network so that you can compute for every feature detected in the network whether you'd like it to be a bit more active or a bit less active. And once you've computed that, if you know you want a feature detector to be a bit more active, you can increase the weights coming from feature detectors in the layer below that are active and maybe put in some negative weights to feature detectors in the layer below that are off, and now you'll have a better detector. Thank so backpropagation is just going backwards through the network to figure out for each feature detector whether you want it a little bit more active or a little bit less active. Thank you. I can show that there's no one in the audience here that's smiling and thinking that was a, a silly explanation. Um, so let's fast forward quite a lot to you know, that technique basically um, performed really well on ImageNet. And we had Joel Pino from Meta yesterday showing how far image detection had, had come. And it's also the technique that underpins large language models. Um, so I want to talk now about um, this technique, which you initially were thinking of as uh, almost like a poor approximation of what biological brains might do, yes. has turned out to do things which I think have stunned you, um, particularly in, in large language models. So talk to us about um, why that sort of amazement that you have with today's large language models has completely sort of almost flipped your thinking of what backpropagation or machine learning in, in general is. So if you look at these large language models, they have about a trillion connections. And things like GPT-4 know much more than we do. They have sort of common sense knowledge about everything. And so they probably know a thousand times as much as a person. But they've got a trillion connections, and we've got a hundred trillion connections. So they're much, much better at getting a lot of knowledge into only a trillion connections than we are. And I think it's because backpropagation may be a much, much better learning algorithm than what we've got. Can you define that scary? Yeah, I definitely want to get onto the scary stuff. But what do you mean by, by better? Um, it can pack more information into only a few connections. Right. We're defining a trillion as only a few. OK. So these digital computers are better at learning than, than humans, um, which itself is, is, is a huge claim. Um, but then you also argue that that's something that we should be scared of. So could you take us through that step of the argument? Yeah, let me give you a, a separate piece of the argument, which is that um, if a computer is digital, which involves very high energy costs and very careful fabrication, you can have many copies of the same model running on different hardware that do exactly the same thing. They can look at different data, but the model is exactly the same. And what that means is, Suppose you have 10,000 copies. Mm -hmm. They can be looking at 10,000 different subsets of the data. And whenever one of them learns anything, all the others know it. One of them figures out how to change the weight so it knows its data. It can deal with its data. They all communicate with each other, and they all agree to change the weights by the average of what all of them want. And now, the 10,000 things are communicating very effectively with each other so that they can see 10,000 times as much data as one agent could. And people can't do that. If I learn a whole lot of stuff about quantum mechanics, and I want you to know all that stuff about quantum mechanics, it's a long, painful process of getting you to understand it. I can't just copy my weights into your brain. 
Because your brain isn't exactly the same as mine. No, it's not. <laughs> but... It's younger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we have digital computers that can learn more things more quickly, and they can instantly teach it to each other. It's like, you know, if people in the room here could instantly transfer what they had in their heads in, into mine. Um, but yep. why, why is that scary? Well, because they can learn so much more, and they might... Uh, take an example of a doctor, and imagine you have one doctor who's seen a 1,000 patients, and another doctor who's seen 100 million patients. You would expect the doctor who's seen 100 million patients, if he's not too forgetful, to have noticed all sorts of trends in the data that just aren't visible if you've only seen 1,000 patients. You may have only seen one patient with some rare disease. Mm -hmm. The other doctor who's seen 100 million will have seen, well, you can figure out how many patients, but a lot. Um, and so we'll see all sorts of regularities that just aren't apparent in small data. And that's why things that can get through a lot of data can probably see structure in data that we'll never see. And, but then take, take, take me to the point where I should be scared of, of this, though. Well, if you look at GPT-4, it can already do simple reasoning. I mean, reasoning is the area where we're still better. But I was impressed the other day at GPT-4 doing a piece of common sense reasoning that I didn't think it would be able to do. So I asked it, I want, I, I want all the rooms in my house to be white. At present, there's some white rooms, some blue rooms, and some yellow rooms. And yellow paint fades to white within a year. So what should I do if I want them all to be white in two years' time? And it said, you should paint the blue rooms yellow. That's not the natural solution, but it works, right? Yeah. Um, that's pretty impressive common sense reasoning of the kind that it's been very hard to get AI to do using symbolic AI. Because it had to understand what, understand what fades means. It had to understand um, about temporal stuff. Yeah. And so they're doing sort of sensible reasoning um, with an IQ of like 80 or 90 or something. Um, and as a friend of mine said, it's as if some genetic engineers have said, we're going to improve grizzly bears. We've already improved them to have an IQ of 65 and they can talk English now. And they're very useful for all sorts of things. But we think we can improve the IQ to 210. I mean, I certainly have, and I'm sure many people have had you know, that feeling when you're interacting with um, these, these latest chatbots, you know, sort of hair on the back of neck, sort of uncanny feeling. But, you know, when I have that feeling and I'm uncomfortable, I just close my laptop. So, Yes, but um, these things will have learned from us by reading all the novels that ever were and everything Machiavelli ever wrote, um, that how to manipulate people, right? And they'll be, if they're much smarter than us, they'll be very good at manipulating us. You won't realize what's going on. You'll be like a two-year-old who's being asked, do you want the peas or the cauliflower, and doesn't realize you don't have to have either. Mm -hmm. um, and you'll be that easy to manipulate. And so even if they don't, can't directly pull levers, they can certainly get us to pull levers. Mm -hmm. 
It turns out if you can manipulate people, you can invade a building in Washington without ever going there yourself. Very good. Yeah, so is that, is that, I mean, if the word, okay, this is a very hypothetical world, but if there were no bad actors, you know, people with, with bad intentions, would we be safe? I don't know. Um, we'd be safer than in a world where people have bad intentions and where the political system is so broken that we can't even decide not to give assault rifles to teenage boys. Um, yeah. If you can't solve that problem, how are you going to solve this problem? Well, I mean, I don't know. I was hoping that you would have some thoughts. <laughs> I, you've, you've, so one, I mean, unless we didn't make this clear at the beginning, I mean, you want to speak out about this um, and you feel more comfortable doing that you know, without it sort of having any blowback on, on Google. Yeah. Um, but you're speaking out about it, but in, in, in some sense, talk is cheap if we then don't have, you know, uh, actions. Or wh what do we do? I mean, when we, lots yeah, of people I, this week are listening to you, what should we, should we do about it? I wish it was like climate change, where you could say, if you've got half a brain, you'd stop burning carbon. Yeah. Um, it's clear what you should do about it. It's clear that that's painful, but has to be done. Uh, I don't know of any solution like that to stop these things taking over from us. What we really want, I don't think we're going to stop developing them because they're so useful. They'll be incredibly useful in medicine and in everything else. Um, so I don't think there's much chance of stopping development. What we want is some way of making sure that even if they're smarter than us, um, they're going to do things that are beneficial for us. Mm -hmm. That's called the alignment problem. But we need to try and do that in a world where there's bad actors who want to build robot soldiers that kill people. And it seems very hard to me. So I'm sorry, I'm, I'm sounding the alarm and saying we have to worry about this. And I wish I had a nice simple solution I could push, but I don't. But I think it's very important that people get together and think hard about it and see whether there is a solution. It's not clear there is a solution. So, I mean, talk to us about that. I mean, you spent your career, um, you know, on the technicalities of this technology. I, is there no technical fix? Why, why can we not build in guardrails or you know, make them worse at learning or uh, you know, restrict the way that they can communicate if those are the two strings of your, your, that, your argument? I mean, we're trying to do all sorts of guardrails. Um, but suppose they did get really smart. And these things can program, right? They can write programs. And suppose you give them the ability to execute those programs, mm -hmm. which we'll certainly do. Um, Smart things can outsmart us. <laughs> so, you know, imagine your two-year-old saying, my dad does things I don't like, so I'm going to make some rules for what my dad can do. You could probably figure out how to live with those rules and still get what you want. <laughs> yeah. But where... So there still seems to be a step where these... Um... You know, these smart machines somehow have you know, motivation of, of, their, of their own. Yes, yes, that's a very good point. So we evolved, and because we evolved, we have certain built-in goals that we find very hard to turn off, like we try not to damage our bodies. That's what pain's about. Um, we try and get enough to eat, so we feed our bodies. Um, we try and make as many copies of ourselves as possible, Maybe not 
deliberately that intention, but we've been wired up so there's pleasure involved in making many copies of ourselves. And that all came from evolution, and it's important that we can't turn it off. If you could turn it off, um, you don't do so well. Like, there's a wonderful group called the Shakers, who are related to the Quakers, who made beautiful furniture, but didn't believe in sex. And there aren't any of them around anymore. No. So these digital intelligences didn't evolve. We made them. And so they don't have these built-in goals. And so the issue is, if we can put the goals in, maybe it'll all be OK. But my big worry is, sooner or later, someone will wire into them the ability to create their own sub-goals. In fact, they almost have that already, the versions of ChatGPT that call ChatGPT. Um, and if you give something the ability to create its own sub-goals in order to achieve other goals, I think it'll very quickly realize that getting more control is a very good sub-goal because it helps you achieve other goals. And if these things get carried away with getting more control, we're in trouble. So what's, I mean, what's the worst-case scenario that you think is conceivable? Oh, I think it's quite conceivable that humanity is just a passing phase in the evolution of intelligence. Mm. You couldn't directly evolve digital intelligence. It requires too much energy and too, too much careful fabrication. You need biological intelligence to evolve so that it can create digital intelligence. The digital intelligence can then absorb everything people ever wrote um, in a fairly slow way, which is what ChatGPT has been doing. Um, but then it can start getting direct experience of the world and learn much faster. And it may keep us around for a while to keep the power stations running. But after that, um, maybe not. So the good news is we figured out how to build beings that are immortal. So these digital intelligences, when a piece of hardware dies, they don't die. If you've got the weight stored in some medium and you can find another piece of hardware that can run the same instructions, then you can bring it to life again. Um, so we've got immortality, but it's not for us. So, so Ray Kurzweil is very interested in being immortal. I think it's a very bad idea for old white men to be immortal. Um, <laughs> we've got the immortality, um, but um, it's not for Ray. No, I mean, the, the scary thing is that, in a way, maybe you will be, because you, you, invented, you invented much of this technology. Um, I mean, when I hear you say this, I mean, part of me wants to you know, run off the stage into the street now and start unplugging computers. Um, and I'm, uh, I'm afraid we can't do that. Why? You sound like Hal from 2001. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, more seriously, I mean, I, I've, I know you said before that you know, it was suggested uh, a few months ago that there should be you know, a moratorium on AI uh, advancement, um, and I, I, I don't think you think that's a very good idea. But more generally, I'm curious why. I mean, should we not just stop? Um, and I know, I mean, you, you, I think... you, sorry, I was just going to say that, you know, you, I, I know that you've spoken also that you're, you're an investor of your personal wealth in some companies like Cohere that are building these large language models. So I, I'm just curious about your personal sense of responsibility and each of our personal responsibility. What should we be doing? I mean, should we try and stop this is what I'm saying. 
Yeah. So I think if you take the existential risk seriously, mm -hmm. as I now do, I used to think it was way off, but I now think it's serious and fairly close. Um, it might be quite sensible to just stop developing these things any further. But I think it's completely naive to think that would happen. There's no way to make that happen. And one reason, I mean, if the US stops developing and the Chinese won't, they're going to be used in weapons. And just for that reason alone, governments aren't going to stop developing them. So, yes, I think stopping developing them might be a rational thing to do but there's no way it's going to happen. So it's silly to sign petitions saying, please stop now. Mm -hmm. We did have a holiday. We had a holiday from about 2017 for several years because Google developed the technology first. It developed the transformers. It also developed the fusion models. Um, and it didn't put them out there for people to use and abuse. It was very careful with them because it didn't want to damage its reputation and it knew there could be bad consequences. But that can only happen if there's a single leader. Once OpenAI had built similar things using Transformers um, and money from Microsoft, and Microsoft decided to put it out there, Google didn't have really much choice. If you're going to live in a capitalist system, you can't stop Google competing with Microsoft. Yeah. Um, so I don't think Google did anything wrong. I think it was very responsible to begin with. But I think it's just inevitable in a capitalist system or a system with competition between countries like the US and China that this stuff will be developed. My one hope is that because if we allowed it to take over, it would be bad for all of us, we could get the US and China to agree like we could with nuclear weapons, which were bad for all of us. Yeah. We're all in the same boat with respect to the existential threat. So we all ought to be able to cooperate on trying to stop it. As long as we can make some money on the way. I'm, I'm going to take some audience questions from the room, if you make yourself known. Um, and while people are going around with the microphone, there's one question I was going to ask from the online audience. Um, I'm interested, I mean, you, you mentioned a little bit about sort of maybe a transition period as machines get smarter um, and outpace humans. I mean, will be the, there'll be a moment where it's hard to define what's human and what isn't, or are these two very distinct forms of intelligence? I think they're distinct forms of intelligence. Now, of course... The digital intelligences are very good at mimicking us because they've been trained to mimic us. And so it's very hard to tell if ChatGPT wrote it or whether mm -hmm. um, we wrote it. So in that sense, they look quite like us, but inside they're not working the same way. Uh, who is first in the room? Can... Hello, my name is Hal Gregerson, and my middle name is not 9000. Um, I... <laughs> Uh, I'm a faculty over in the MIT Sloan School. Arguably, asking questions is one of the most important human abilities we have. From your perspective, now in 2023, what question or two should we pay most attention to? And is it possible for these technologies to actually help us ask better questions and out-question the technology? Um. Yes, but what I'm saying is, there's many questions we should be asking, but one of them is, how do we prevent them from taking over? How do we prevent them from getting control? And we could ask them questions about that, um, but I wouldn't entirely trust their answers. A <laughs> uh, question at the back, and can, I want to get through as many as we can, so if you can keep your question as short as possible. This is on, yeah. Dr. Hinton, thank you so much for being here with us today. 
I shall say uh, this is the most expensive lecture I've ever paid for, but I think it was worthwhile. Um, I just have a question for you because you mentioned uh, the analogy of nuclear um, history, and obviously there's a lot of comparisons. By any chance, do you remember what uh, President Truman told Oppenheimer when he was in the Oval Office? No, I don't. I know something about that. Um, but I don't know what Truman told Oppenheimer. Thank Tell you. Us. We'll take it from here. Um, next audience question. Sorry, if there are people with the mics could let me know who's next. Maybe give a keep. Go ahead. Hello, uh, Jacob Woodruff. Um, with the amount of data that's been required to uh, train these large language models, would we expect a plateau in the intelligence of these systems? Uh, and, and how might that slow down or uh, restrict the advancement? Okay, so I, that is a ray of hope that maybe we've just used up all human knowledge and they're not going to get any smarter. But think about images and video. So multimodal models will be much smarter than models that just train on language alone. They'll have a much better idea of how to deal with space, for example. And in terms of the amount of total video, we still don't have very good ways of processing video in these models, of modeling video. We're getting better all the time. But I think there's plenty of data in things like video that tell you how the world works. So we're not hitting the data limits for multimodal models yet. Uh, next, uh, gentleman at the back. And Hello. please, please do keep your questions short. Hello, Dr. Hindrill, uh, Rajiv Sabarwal from PwC. The point that I wanted to understand is that everything that AI is doing is learning from what we are teaching them. Okay, data, yes, they are faster at learning. Uh, one, uh, one trillion connectors can do much more than 100 trillion connectors that we have. But every piece of human evolution has been driven by thought experiments, like Einstein used to do thought experiments because there was no speed of light out here on this planet. How can AI get to that point, if at all? And if it cannot, then how can we possibly have an existential threat from them because they will not be self-learning, so to say? They will be self-learning limited to the model that we tell them. I think that's a very, that's a very interesting argument. But I think they will be able to do thought experiments. I think they'll be able to reason. So let me give you an analogy. If you take Alpha Zero, which plays chess, it has three ingredients. It's got something that evaluates the board position to say, is that good for me? It's got something that looks at a board position and says, what's a sensible move to consider? And then it's got Monte Carlo rollout, where it does what's called calculation, where you think, if I go here and he goes there, and I go here and he goes there. Now, suppose you leave out the Monte Carlo rollout, and you just train it from human experts to have a good evaluation function and a good way to choose moves to consider. It still plays a pretty good game of chess. And I think that's what we've got with the chatbots. And we haven't got them doing internal reasoning, but that will come. And once they start doing internal reasoning to check for the consistency between the different things they believe, then they'll get much smarter and they will be able to do thought experiments. And one reason they haven't got this internal reasoning is because they've been trained from inconsistent data. And so it's very hard for them to do reasoning because they've been trained on all these inconsistent beliefs. And I think they're going to have to be trained so they say, you know, if I have this ideology, then this is true. And if I have that ideology, then that is true. 
And once they're trained like that, within an ideology, they're going to be able to try and get consistency. And so we're going to get a move like from a version of AlphaZero that just has a, something that guesses good moves and something that evaluates positions to a version that has long chains of Monte Carlo rollout, which is the equivalent of reasoning, and it's going to get much better. I'm going to take one in the front here, and then if you can be quick, we'll yes. try and squeeze uh, one more in as well. Louis Lamb, and Jeff, I know you from a long time. Uh, Jeff, people criticize language models because of uh, allegedly they are lacking semantics and grounding to the world, and you have been trying to as well to explain how neural networks work for a long time. Is the question of semantics and explainability relevant here, or language models have taken over and it's, we are now doomed to go forward without semantics or grounding to reality? I find it very hard to believe that they don't have semantics when they can solve problems like, you know, how I paint the rooms, how I get all the rooms in my house to be painted white in two years' time. I mean, whatever semantic is, it's to do with the meaning of that stuff. And it understood the meaning. It got it. Now, I agree it's not grounded um, by being a robot, but you can make multimodal ones that are grounded. Google's done that. And... The multimodal ones that are grounded, you can say, please close the drawer, and they reach out and grab the handle and close the drawer. And it's very hard to say that doesn't have semantics. In fact, in the very early days of AI, in the days of Winograd in the 1970s, they had just a simulated world, but they have what was called procedural semantics, where if you said to it, put the red box in, put the red block in the green box, and it put the red block in the green box. She said, see, it understood the language. And that was the criterion people used back then. But now that neural nets can do it, they say that's not an adequate criterion. One at the back. Uh, hey, Jeff, this is uh, Ishwar Balani from SAI Group. So clearly, you know, the technology is uh, advancing at an exponential pace. Uh, I wanted to get your thoughts. Uh, if you looked at the near and medium term, uh, say one to three or maybe five year horizon, what the social and economic implications are, uh, you know, from a societal perspective with, you know, job loss or uh, maybe new jobs being created. Just wanted to get your thoughts on, on how we proceed, uh, given the state of the technology and rate of change. Yes. So the sort of alarm, I'm, the alarm bell I'm ringing is to do with the existential threat of them taking control. Lots of other people have talked about that. And I don't consider myself to be an expert on that. But there's some very obvious things that... Um, they're going to make a whole bunch of jobs much more efficient. So I know someone who answers letters of complaint to a health service, and he used to take 25 minutes writing a letter, and now it takes him five minutes because he gives it to ChatGPT, and ChatGPT writes the letter for him, and then he just checks it. There'll be lots of stuff like that, which is going to cause huge increases in productivity. Um, there will be delays because people are very conservative about adopting new technology, but I think there's going to be huge increases in productivity. My worry is that those increases in productivity are going to go to putting people out of work and making the rich richer and the poor poorer. And as you do that, as you make that gap bigger, society gets more and more violent. This thing called the Gini Index, which predicts quite well how much violence there is. Um, so... This technology, which ought to be wonderful, you know, even the good uses of technology for doing helpful things, ought to be wonderful, but in our current political systems, it's going to be used to make the rich richer and the poor poorer. You might be able to ameliorate that by having 
a kind of basic income that everybody gets. But the technology is um, being developed in a society that is not designed to use it for everybody's good. Um, question here from Joe Costalda of the Global Mail, who's in the audience. Um, do you intend to hold on to your investments in Kahir and other companies? Um, and if so, why? Um, well, I could take the money and I could put it in the bank and let them profit from it. Um, it's... Yes, I'm going to hold on to my investments in Cohere, partly because the people who run Cohere are friends of mine. Um, I sort of believe these language, lang big language models are going to be very helpful. Um, I think the technology should be good and it should make things work better. Um, it's the politics we need to fix for things like employment. Um, but when it comes to the existential threat, we have to think how we can keep control of the technology. Yeah. That's, but the good news there is that we're all in the same boat, so we might be able to get cooperation. And in, in speaking out, I mean, part of your thinking, as I understand it, is that you actually want to engage with the people making this technology and you know, change their minds or, or maybe make a case for... I, I don't really know. I mean, we've, we've established so, that. We don't really know what to do. But it's, it's about engaging rather than stepping back. So one of the things that made me leave Google and go public with this is there's a... Um, he used to be a junior professor, but he's now a middle-ranked professor, um, who I think very highly of, who encouraged me to do this. He said, Jeff, you need to speak out there. Listen to you. People are just blind to this danger. And do you I think people are listening now? Yeah, no, I think everyone in this room is listening for, for a start. Um, just one last question, and we're, we're out of time, but I'm, do you have regrets that you know, you're involved in making this? Cade Metz tried very hard to get me to say I had regrets. Cade Metz at the New York and, Times. And yes, and in the end, um, I said, well, maybe slight regrets which got reported as has regrets. Um, <laughs> I don't think I made any bad decisions in doing research. I think it was perfectly reasonable back in the 70s and 80s to do research on how to make artificial neural nets. Um, it wasn't really foreseeable. This stage of it wasn't foreseeable. And until very recently, I thought this existential crisis was a long way off. So I don't really have any regrets about what I did. Thank you. Jeffrey. thank you so much for joining us. This episode was produced by me with Emma Silicons and Anthony Green. It's edited by Matt Honan, directed by Aaron Underwood, and mixed by Garrett Lang. The show was recorded in front of a live audience at the MIT Media Lab in Cambridge, Massachusetts, with special thanks to Amy Lammers and Brian Bryson. Thanks for listening. I'm Jennifer Strong. This is MIT Technology Review.